power this time. <clears throat> too much power right there. So on Wednesday nights, and in fact this is about to change, Van and I will be swapping our class time here in just uh, this week actually, but um, in one of our Bible study classes, we've been talking about understanding the Bible. And when we began this series, as you might guess, at the beginning of the Bible. And so we've been talking about the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch and sort of the Old Testament in general. And something that has really been on the forefront of my mind is the faithfulness of God as evidence from cover to cover in Scripture. And I think sometimes we often think of the way Lord deals with people now as, as being really radically different than in times past. And, and there are some reasons for that. But one thread, at least, that we can trace from the very beginning of Scripture is that of God's faithfulness. And so in our time this evening, I want to highlight some of the promises God has made to his people in the Old Testament. And we'll start with a couple that would be familiar to us, some pretty well-known examples, but uh, an example of God's promises and looking at how these promises are fulfilled today. Um, scripture speaks often of these promises with the word covenant. That's a very popular Bible term used over 300 times in the Bible. By simplest definition, a covenant is an agreement between two parties, but spiritually we understand that it is much deeper than that. We talked about uh, just the example that a contract will have a term and it'll have end dates and it might... Uh, pertain to one particular thing or even a set of things, whereas the covenant really, it was permanent, it was lasting, it would last many generations as we've seen, but it also encompassed a person's entire being. It, it called them to be completely faithful to God. And so I find this so amazing that, that God chooses, God who is holy, God who is above all things, God who is perfect, God who is the creator and master of the universe, chooses to enter into these covenants with us. And so I just I find that so, so moving emotionally, but also just so fascinating as we study Scripture. And so I want to start with the example of Noah. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6. This is a well-worn passage, a well-treaded passage. But it's one of the first times the Bible explicitly uses this, this word covenant, and so it seemed like a great place to start. Um, Genesis 6 through 9 really tell the entire story of Jonah, but we're just going to look at a, a chunk of it here in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 16. And God, God is speaking to Noah. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and you every living thing of all flesh you shall bring, two of every sort, into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort, shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so we see that God makes a covenant. He makes a promise with Noah. It sounds pretty threatening, but it is a promise. He says, I will bring flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on earth will die. But he shifts and he says, but with you I will establish my covenant. No, God chooses 
no one. He, and he promises him later on in the story, as we, as we probably are familiar with, he promises, never again will I raise up the waters to destroy the world by flood. And so he promises that Noah, he says, if you, if you do these things, if you do as I ask, I will promise something in return. And so we see the beginnings of that kind of contractual agreement, that kind of language. At the top of the chapter, we would see that at the top of chapter 6, that Noah lived at a time of great apostasy. It was a time when people had no desire to follow after God. They had no concern for God's commands. Their, their desires were simply for their own hearts. The exact phrasing is in Genesis 6, 5, is the desire of man's heart was only evil continually. I think often a common phrase that I hear that I kind of, I guess, laugh at is that oh, things, are just, things are so bad today. Things have never been as bad as they have been today. Well, uh, he ain't promising to kill everybody, so they're not that bad. <laughs> Everything's relative, I suppose, when you start talking about the timeline of all of God's interactions with man. Uh, they can certainly be bad, but he says the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. And so when there's this dark time, and yet in spite of that, the text also says that Noah walked with God, that, that he and his family stayed true to God, that they had considered and obeyed and listened for God's will in their lives in a time where people were careless and in a time where people were not listening to God. They did not, in the truest sense of the word careless, they did not care that there was a God, or if there was, they did not care what he had to tell them. But Noah listened for God's will. And so as a result, God singles out Noah. He, he chooses him to fulfill this great work, and the Lord does great things through Noah, not because Noah is special, not because Noah is of the right family, not because Noah was this amazing, upstanding mayor of the, of the town. But he says, no, 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 because Noah obeyed God. Because Noah put his faith in God and in God's will for his life, and God's commands and God's instructions on how one ought to live. And so God was faithful. And God rewards Noah. He rewards Noah for his faithfulness. As I said, of course, we know this story. God, God sees the prevailing wickedness of the world, and he saves Noah. And what's interesting about this story is we, we, we've heard it so many times. It could be one of those, like, yeah, he told him to build an ark, he built an ark, a bunch of animals climbed in, they were all saved, flooded the earth. And, you know, it's just what you do when God tells you to build a boat, you go build one. But it's kind of an insane thing that he asked him to do. It's pretty wild. He says, you know, everyone's acting really evil. So what I want you to do is, uh, you know, he doesn't say go, go door to door and just start asking people to behave. Don't, don't go out there and just start punishing everybody who does wrong or, or try to form a, a council to maybe see how we can get people to behave better or put up wanted posters. He says, no, 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 no. Everyone's acting horrible, so I want you to go build a boat. Okay. Um, why? You know, I, I would have some follow-up questions personally. He says, build the boat. Noah says, okay. That is the kind of faith that Noah had in God. He said, do this and you'll be saved. If you are on the boat, you will be saved. If you are not on the boat, you will be lost. And so when I think of this, this covenant, this idea in today's world, of course we know God kept up his end of the bargain. He has not inundated the earth with water as he did during the time of Noah, but there's also something deeper at work. Yes, he did keep his promise to Noah, but does this covenant apply today? Does, does, it, does it matter to us today? And I want us to think about what he called Noah to do, how he called him to act really strangely, we would say, in a way that was certainly different from everyone, but not just different from everyone, but different sometimes sometimes different in a way that did not make sense. Noah didn't know it was going to flood yet. I don't, I don't know if God told him the entire plan or if he just said build a boat and wait for their instructions. But does God not ask us today to do things that sometimes seem strange? 
Certainly there are commands of his that, you know, do not murder. Okay, that's pretty easy, God. I can do that. Pray for those who persecute you. Hmm. You mean that they'll like go away, right? No, 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 no. Rejoice when you're persecuted, actually. Enjoy that. Blessed are you who are slandered and spat on for my sake. There's things that make sense. We can go, okay, God, I'm with that. And then there's things God asks us to do that we're kind of just like, um, okay, God, I feel like you're telling me to build a boat and I'm in a desert. You're telling me to build a boat and I'm not seeing the rain. And so sometimes God commands us to do things that might seem very strange and are certainly different from the way everyone else is acting. As we see from the example of Noah, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And so he says, everyone in the boat lives and everyone outside of the boat perishes. Consider some of the commands we have today that apply today. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. From front to back, the Bible speaks of God's faithfulness to his people, of his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. He redeems those who he promises to redeem, but he also condemns those who he says he will condemn. God gave Noah instructions, and Noah obeyed, and as a result, Noah was saved. God rewarded Noah's faithfulness, because he is a God who is ultimately faithful. I'd like to, in our, in our time, we'll look at the, one more example Um, This one is from Genesis. It's the other, probably the most famous covenant in the Bible, but also one of the oldest. And that's why I start here, to really just show us the the, the breadth of time that God has always been this way. Because like I said, so many times when I was studying the Old Testament, it can feel like a, a time and a culture and a way of living that is just so different from ours. But I like to show people how the God who is God of the universe is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, as the Bible says. So I want to look at the next example, uh, Genesis 17. This is, again, probably the second most popular, most well-known covenant in the Old Testament, if not the most. And we're going to read just a section of it again. We could look at uh, probably Genesis 15 all the way through 18, deal with God's covenant with Abraham. But we're just going to read a small section of it from Genesis 17, beginning in verse 5. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so we see, we can read this, and this is one of those particular passages where we we read in it. The Bible talks extensively about this, this sign of circumcision. So we can read it like, okay, what's, what's the big deal? What, why is there so much to be made about this one act? Why is the promise seem to be hinging on this one act? But I would, I would argue that to understand the, the entirety of Abraham's story, we would see that the, the sign of circumcision is not the full terms of the agreement. We, we talked about when we first started talking about covenants, we talked about how there, God has conditions, he has terms. You know, if you've ever downloaded anything on your phone and you scroll through about seven pages of terms and conditions and you never read, nobody ever reads any of them, 
Well, God gave Abraham further terms and conditions, but he said, but the sign of your agreement to this covenant will be this sign of circumcision. And so it's not that their agreement hinged all on this, but he said, if you are obeying my covenant, if you're keeping my covenant, this is the sign that I want you to do. And so it was part of it, but it was a part that represented the whole. It was not, it was, that was not the only thing. But God said, this is how I know you are keeping my commands and how I know you are staying true to what I have asked. And I would offer perhaps a, a similar example in modern practice. Again, if we ask, does this covenant apply today? I would say consider baptism. And I want to be clear when I say this because we've, we've studied many times over the conversions and acts, the commands to be baptized in Scripture, the example of Jesus' baptism in Scripture. But if I am not keeping the terms of that agreement in the sense of I am not living how God wants me to live, if I have not had a changed heart, what, what is really happening? Who among us would say that I can be baptized and then go on to live a sinful life and consider that box checked, my work to God complete? I would say consider 1 Peter 3.20 when he says the baptism, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the sign or acknowledgement of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we backed up, that was verse 21, but if we backed up to verse 20, Peter actually specifically references that covenant with Noah. He says God's patience in, in the days of Noah was few, but they were brought safely through water. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal or the acknowledgement to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have that offside of verse from Acts 2, repent and be baptized, but baptism without repentance is simply a bath. You do nothing in obedience to God, but you say, oh, but see, I, I did immerse myself in water one time. You are not someone who has become obedient to what God is asking you. And so in the same way in Genesis, there was this idea that, that God tells Abraham, yes, the covenant is the covenant of circumcision. And yes, that's what it is called many times in the New Testament. But it says, really, there is a, he said, this is the sign of the covenant. Exactly what the text says in verse 11 of Genesis 17. It is the sign of the covenant. He said, but there's other things. There's a standard I'm calling you to live. Again, recall that we said a covenant with God is not a... It's not a part-time agreement. It's not a, well, just, just take this one area of your life and fix this. No, 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 no. He says the covenant is about your entire being. And so, again, I would say if baptism without repentance is simply a bath because it's not getting wet in the water that saves, but it is God who saves us through baptism. The extraordinary thing, again, about God's covenant with Abraham, about his covenant with Noah, and about the covenant the promise he makes with us through Jesus Christ is, again, just the, the magnificence of a God who is holy, who is omniscient, who is all-powerful, who lowered himself, Philippians 3 says, into flesh to make that covenant with us, with weak and sinful people, with normal folks like you and I. If you are with us this evening and you have not entered into this relationship with God, if you have not made the promise to repent and be baptized as the scripture says, if this invitation is for you, won't you come? This morning we talked about Luke 16, 19 through 30, 31, the parable of the rich man or the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So what I wanted to do tonight was review, at least uh, spend some time reviewing the second half of this parable and kind of discuss a little bit about it. Um, if we have time, I'll go into the reasons that uh, people have suggested for it being or not being a parable, but ultimately uh, 
what we'll understand as we look at the second half of it is that the teaching that is within it remains true whether it's a factual story or whether it's a parable, kind of as I mentioned this morning. So um, this, this morning we just we, – we opened up the story. If you weren't with us, we opened up the story. We began it. We talked about how the rich man and Lazarus, they lived different lives. Of course, the rich man, as the name suggests, was defined by his wealth, whereas Lazarus was the poor beggar who was not just poor but afflicted, was sick, was ignored by society. And these two men lived very different lives, but were both sort of brought low or brought equal in death. And then there's this reversal that happens in the next life. So we'll go ahead and read this. And actually, I'll ask if uh, someone else wouldn't mind reading uh, from verse 25, we'll say, through verse 27 of Luke 16. Luke 16, 25 through 27, if you don't mind. I said 27, but you read 28, which is what I meant, so that worked out. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so before we get into some of the notes, is there any questions or anything that we kind of talked about this morning so far or any thoughts about uh, just, just the, the story as has been discussed or presented so far before we dig into it any further? Huh. Something interesting, as uh, Michael read for us, when the rich man is calling off, and we discussed this this morning, we, we've touched on this before in many classes, particularly in Galatians, how the, the Jews were often guilty of this complacency and this reliance upon their, their Jewish heritage. On this saying, well, we've been born in the bloodline, we are God's chosen people, God has chosen us, and there's nothing else we need to do. We're good, we're set, we're done. And quite often, Jesus calls this out, Paul calls this out in his letters over and over as he's writing to the church, and they're dealing with this, this split and this merging of the Jew and Gentile cultures and all this and that. But notice that even inside the context of this story, even in the afterlife, the rich man calls out. He addresses him as Father Abraham, which hints at that he himself was guilty of this reliance. He's, he had depended on his, on his lineage, on this belief that, well, if I'm circumcised, if I'm through that Abrahamic covenant, and that's really why I talked about it this uh, kind of in our, our sort of Devo portion, is he was guilty of saying, ah, oh, well, I've been circumcised. I don't need to do anything else to be obedient to God. I've been born of the right bloodline. I'm a Levite or a Benjaminite. I'm, I'm a child of Israel or of Jacob and of Isaac. But really, that's, that's not how it works with God. He says, no, I don't. That's on, And this is something. I'm trying to satisfy how specific I want to get into this. But there are other people who often teach many, many versions of this. And, and this is, again, something we touched on when we were studying Galatians. Is the Judaizers said, well, just keep the Mosaic law and nothing else matters. But there are many, many forms of this in modern teaching today. There's many, many versions in, in other churches out there that would teach, like, or Christian traditions that would teach, well, if you just do this and you're saved and you're good. On what planet does that make sense? Like, just, just think about this for me. Just any sort of, in any way God has dealt with people in any period of time, Old Testament, patriarchs, time of the prophets, Christian era, pick your favorite timeline. On what planet would it make sense where God would say, you, you do this one thing now and you can do anything else the rest of your life. You get a free pass and nothing else matters. 
does that make sense? I don't know. Maybe I hear more of that kind of teaching than uh, you guys do. But that's always just sort of baffled me. But even this, this man is, is guilty of that. because He says, Father Abraham, he calls out to him, he acknowledges him as Father Abraham. And he says, have mercy on me. Mercy or, or charity or this idea of hope that, that maybe something can still be done. That It seems like the decision is made, but maybe, maybe we can enter into this stage of bargaining or there's something I can do or there's, there's somebody who can intercede on my behalf who can help me. But the rich man is already in torment. And it's also interesting that he asks, much like when we were talking about uh, Lazarus who was hungry, who was, who was starving, said, well, just... You know, you know, I don't need the chicken wings and the turkey legs and the mashed potatoes. Just give me the crumbs from your table. The rich man now says, well, well maybe if I can't be delivered completely out of this, just, just cool my tongue. You know, if you can't save me, well, maybe we can negotiate. Maybe we can reach a compromise, right? And again, I've probably joked about this before, but we've all been in dire straits in our lives and said, God, God, you just, you know, you just get me through this. We'll, we'll make something happen later. We'll, we'll do whatever needs to be done. You just get me through this phase of my life. You get me through this time period right now or this thing that I'm dealing with, and, and we'll make it happen. And unfortunately for the rich man, he is on the other side of the veil, so to speak. But he's begging and maybe hoping for some sort of compromise. And it says, well, at least give me some relief if I cannot be saved. And then, of course, uh, other people have noted that he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus with perhaps this mentality that the holdover of the way he lived his life before as if Lazarus is somehow the servant of Abraham that, or the servant of the rich man that he should be going back and forth to save him. And it just every piece of the dialogue just continues to reveal the mindset of the man who was, who was lost. And so in verse 25, we have really the crux of the whole story. Everything kind of, I would say, revolves around this this sentence right here, that remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things, that now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And we'll, we'll come back to this as we get through maybe some more textual notes here. But this is the, what we would say makes this a parable of reversal. But it says, it echoes back to that passages, those passages we read in the Beatitudes of Luke 6. That, you know, blessed are you who mourn now, but woe to you who are happy now. This is probably most evident in Luke's gospel. He emphasizes these more than Matthew or Mark or John do. But this idea that the way things are in this life are not at all representative of how they will be in the next. And of course, there's, we could talk about the caveats of that. And yes, of course, you can be a Christian and live a good life. That doesn't, the, the, the man's sin is not to be rich, right? His, his sin was not that he was simply that he was rich, but that he was rich, he was neglectful, he was absorbed in his wealth, and most importantly, he was disobedient to God, as we'll see as we sort of continue to look at this passage. But he says that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus bad things, but now he is comforted and you are in anguish. We could look at many verses, and I have a couple here that would uh, emphasize the, the Jewish perspective on life. Uh, I will jump over to John 9, and we'll, we'll come back to this passage, but uh, we'll go ahead and read. we got a little bit of time, so we'll go ahead and jump over to John 9, and I want to read a couple of verses. The beginning of John 9 is when Jesus heals the blind man or the man born blind. 
And in verse 2, the disciples, like not even the Pharisees described it. This, this is how I would say this is representative of how the Jews thought at this time. Verse 2 says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I want you to think about that question for a moment. Like, like try and wrap your brain around this. We, we've touched on this a little bit. Um, I don't remember what... I don't remember which study it was where we had the, the picture on the slideshow of the temple and how the temple had the, the innermost holy of holies that only the priests could go. And then it had the outer room where the Jews could go, but only on certain days when they worshipped. And then outside the temple it had the courts where, well, if you were a Jewish male, but it wasn't worship time for the sacrifice, you could go there. And then outside that it had the courts of the women where if you were Jewish but you were a woman, you could go this far. And then it had the court where if you were not Jewish but you were still someone who feared God, you could go here. And then way out here in this corner of the temple courtyard was literally what they called the court of the lepers. And if you were disfigured, if you were somehow born or perceived to be born with a defect, that was as close as you got to God. And that's what I, I really wish I had thought ahead to put this map up on the screen like we did that one time. But I think that's where we are so, in this regard, privileged that we can all kind of worship together. And you and I don't think anything about all of us coming into one room and worshiping together. Um, I bet we went a little further south. There might, there might be a few people old enough to remember not being able to go certain places on account of their skin color. But even then, it, it, that might be the closest we could get to recognizing this. But imagine being told in a place of worship that because of the way you were born, be it blind, paralytic, um, lame, lepers, because of the way you were born, you cannot be as close to God as other people. Like that, that's, that's crazy. And, and, and that was just how they saw it. This was the kind of thing that was, in, it, was it was just how their culture, we would say, interpreted the text. I would say there was probably some issues there. I don't know if I agree with their interpretation of it. But that is just what they thought was right. And so they said, no, 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 if you're, if, and there was a whole bunch of things. Like I said, it, the, the women could only go so far, the Gentiles could go so far, but particularly, even if you were born Jewish, but if you were a leper, if you were a paralytic, if you were blind, you could not be as close to God as other people. And the idea was, well, clearly you messed up. God wouldn't make you this way if you weren't how in some way wrong. And so this, this line is so reflective of their culture at the time. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And of course, Jesus answers, as he always does, with the, the, the profound, just mind-melting wisdom. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, the, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he says, well, no, 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 no one sinned to make this man this way. He said, this man was made this way so that the work of God might be revealed. And that's pretty, for it is almost disgusting as verse 2 is. Verse 3 is pretty awesome. No matter how useless you think you are, God says, I can take your useful uselessness and I can display my work in you. And so, of course, there's this whole exchange. A bunch of other things happen in the chapter. But I wanted to point out one more verse kind of towards the end. Yeah, he heals the blind man. They have this exchange. They have the discussion about, about why he was blind and all this and then. And get this, I don't have time to read all of it, but from verse 24 to verse 34, the blind man begins speaking with Jesus and the Pharisees because he's been healed. And uh, for example, 
I'll read verse 24 and 25, and then we'll skip down to the end. Um, this is the Pharisees talking to the blind man. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, and they are speaking about Jesus, by the way. They, they call Jesus the imposter. They call him uh, a sinner because he's, he's healing and doing things that they just can't wrap their brain around. So they say, well, he must not be from God. The Pharisees are denying Jesus' word. And so they, they are talking to the blind man about Jesus. They say, give glory to God because he wanted to give glory to Jesus. And they said, we know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He, the blind man, answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they say, look, and, and how often does Jesus say, judge someone by their fruits? The blind man says, look, I can't read the scrolls. I don't know Isaiah. All I know is that you can tell me that man's not from God, but all I know is he said he was and he healed me. And look all the way down at verse 34. Well, I'll start at verse 33. The blind man is still speaking in verse 33. The man who was blind, the no longer blind man. If this man, still speaking of Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. They, the Pharisees, answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. We start with this question. Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus gives an amazing answer. He says, no, 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 God has chosen him to reveal my work. And he proves it by healing the man. And, and rather than opening their eyes to see what's going on in front of him, they debate and they sit back and they go, well, he must not be from God. What is this power of demons? And they, they go and ask the blind man's parents, and, and in part of the parts we skipped over, they say, well, was he really born blind? When did he become blind? Like, they're trying to poke holes in the story any way they can, right? They're, and, and come on. <laughs> This is a small town. This is the ancient world. Those of y'all who live here, if someone in the community is blind and you've known them their whole life, you know who they are. No one's tricking you. Like this, this We're not going to see any faith healing coming around here because you'd be like, that's Johnny. He's not paralyzed. I've known him my whole life. That's fake. And you're like, well, let's go ask his parents. Hey, maybe we can pick something apart there. And they're asking him and they're interrogating him. And he's, he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But the one thing I do know is though I was blind, now I see. And their response is you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And of course, Jesus goes to him after being cast out, and they, he has his own exchange as a reaction to that. But it's incredible to me that not only did they have this way of thinking, but they were so set in this way of thinking that even though Jesus healed somebody in front of them and tried to tell them, hey, you're thinking about this wrong, and as evidence, let me heal this man by the power of God and prove it to you, they said, ah, I don't, I just don't know about that. I don't know. I just don't know about this Jesus guy. He can't be from God. And the blind man himself is testifying about the work Jesus has done in him. They say, you were born in utter sin. What do you know? That's crazy. Like, the, not just the denial of what's happening, but also the pride to sit back and say, you are a filthy, you're a filthy sinner person. How could you teach me anything? Which is the exact opposite, of course, of what Jesus calls us to live and to learn, to teach, and, and all of those things. But I just, I, I read that to show you the kind of, the mentality and the understanding that was going on at this time. And the reason Jesus is speaking the way he does about the rich man and Lazarus to say that, no, 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 no. 
not only is he not cursed by God, but he says, you know what? This man who is rich, this man who seems to have everything, this man that you would have called blessed by God, even though he's not obedient to God, but he seems to be blessed, he seems to be living a good life. He says, not only is the way you're thinking wrong, but I want you to imagine the most wealthy, richly, well-fed person you can possibly think of. I didn't think of the poorest, most beggarly individual you can think of. And you know who will be rewarded? Not that guy. Beggar. The guy that you would have said, no, 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 go sit on the outer court of the temple and don't come in unless you've washed yourself seven times in the Jordan River and then you can only come this close. So that's, that's the guy who will literally be at Abraham's side in the next life. And that's the reason that phrase, Abraham's bosom, it, it's been debated a lot, and I, I thought about touching on this, but I really didn't want to, so I feel like it detracts from the point of the parable. But he says it was this phrase that also meant like the seat of honor. And if you can imagine Abraham, one of the heroes of faith, Moses would be somebody else who would be a hero of the Jewish faith. But he said, this man that you would not even have let into the outer court of the temple, he will get the place of honor on Abraham's left side when we feast in the next life. And that, that is the level of reversal that Jesus says happens in the kingdom. And I just think that's pretty powerful. Questions, comments, thoughts. We'll, we'll get into a few more notes on the text um, for our last few minutes here. But I have a question. Yeah. Uh, so, from the reading on Mark, they think that the people at that time believed that you could be born in the temple. 100%. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, I would. I don't know off the top of my head, but there's a passage in Ezekiel where they are debating this because there is a they, they quote an older saying from the law of Moses where essentially God says, if you sin in this way, I will pronounce judgment to the, uh, the X generation. And what really God is saying is, is I would say it's almost a, a hyperbole or an exaggerating effect or just a saying the level of punishment that comes from committing that kind of sin. But they took that and they said, ah, of course, God punishes the son for the father of the sin. And it is later through Ezekiel that this gets brought up again. And God says, no, 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 no. Um, the, the parents have eaten grapes, sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on – you say that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And that's the exact quote from the prophet. Uh, some, somewhere in Ezekiel, but if, if someone finds it, that would be great, but I can't remember it. But he says, uh, you say that the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And I say, no, the soul who sins shall die. And so even though we have in the Bible, in the same prophets they would have had, in the same scrolls they would have had, certainly the Pharisees and scribes would have had access to God says, yes, I understand that you used to think this way, that you used to understand it this way, it, but you were flawed. You were mistaken. No, 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 no. That's not what happens. And he says, no, the soul that sins shall die. And he says that through Ezekiel. And it seems that th this period of Second Temple Judaism that had arisen at the time of Jesus basically just was like, yeah, we don't, we don't know what to do with that. So we're just going to ignore it. <laughs> um, I would say that most of the Jews that Jesus interacts with during his time, not all of them because his, his disciples were Jews, but a lot of the Jews that he has seen criticizing in the Gospels are people who have grossly misunderstood the Old Testament, who have really taken things not just out of context, but they've really twisted them. We often talk about how they had the law, but then they built their own hedge around the law, probably originally with good intentions, right? But then they started treating their own rules and customs and their own hedge as sanctified and holy as the law itself. And 
they really just got into a perversion of what was intended through God's people. Um, good question, though. Yeah, they, did, they absolutely thought that, unfortunately. Good thought. Other, other questions, comments? When Jesus is talking to Pharisees or in the old no, law? <laughs> I'd have to find the context to remember because I, I don't. Um, it, it, it's something along the line. If, if, if this happens, the, um, I will punish them to the, the such and such generation. I think it's more because of what we see a lot in, in that early, early Israelite time is the, the clans and sort of the wars and the families. Like, okay, in Sunday morning, Van was going through minor prophets. Over and over, he says the Edomites, or he says those entire. Their judgment was pronounced on like whole nations. Well, nations were families. And so when he says the such and such and such and such generation, he's saying all the Canaanites. Well, if we went back, you know, if I walked around 6,000 BC and I, with a survey, asking all the Canaanites, did all the Canaanites act wickedly? I don't know, probably not all of them. <laughs> but they, that was how they thought of it, if that makes sense. Especially when you go back and you look at the way. Uh, Collective reward and collective punishment usually happened in the Old Testament, um, where it was very common where if a man sinned, his family was punished. You know, And oftentimes they were cast out, and they were cast out to the X, X Y, or Z generation. Um, so there's why that was. I can't really answer in any short frame of time other than that was kind of the best answer I can give is that's kind of just how they handled things early on. Um, we see that a lot in Joshua and Judges, for example. Joshua would be probably the best place to study where what collective punishment looked like in the Israelites' context. Um, does that at least kind of answer your question or give you a direction to go with answering the question, hopefully? Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding is that it wasn't a, like you said, they didn't have a direct relationship to the Israelites. It was I understand what you're saying now. Yes, yeah. I see the distinction you're making now, and yes, it wasn't, it wasn't like legal in terms of finding and listing each individual so much as it was, yeah, it was just that collective, that family, that clan, that nation. Um, you talk about blind. We were all blind to God. Well, nobody can see God because he's a, he's a spirit. Nobody had hypocrisy. But we all, I only accept the, the high priest go in once a year behind the curtain. He could see God. He could talk to God. But when Christ died on the cross, we were all made to see because the curtain was tore. That's we true. all go through the curtain now to God. Yeah. When, when I read so the... We were all blind until he died on the cross. Absolutely. When I read the blind... I mean, when I read the blind man's word, I think of the, the words of amazing grace, right? I was blind, but now I see. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, anytime you look at these healings, there's always responses that very clearly echo kind of the sentiments and the emotion of salvation, you know. Um, yeah, all good thoughts and comments. Sure.
Yes. I thought it was Ezekiel, but I guess it was Jeremiah. And, and now that you read that, I believe it's in that s- a very similar passage that talks about, uh, it's really complicated, but the gist of it is that, you know, being born of your father will not make you God's people, but being taught will make you God's people. And that's, that's a whole different uh, story, but it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Um, I have really time to start. Any new topics here? Um, but I will just, I guess, reiterate that we could, if we had time, point out things that would say, well, because of this language thing, it seems like a parable. Jesus doesn't say it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is. But I would again point to that if you look at some of the most powerful things Jesus gave his teachings, things that have entered like our just mainstream culture, like if you say the prodigal son, everybody knows what the prodigal son means. You say a good Samaritan, everybody knows what a good Samaritan means. Those were parables. So, so oftentimes I've heard debates about is this a parable or is it not, but that really does not limit the teaching in the way that sometimes that can sound, if that makes sense. Sometimes people say, well, it's just a parable, as if to put it in this box and say, so it can't teach us something. Okay, but would anyone ever say, well, the Good Samaritan is just a parable, I don't need to help anybody? No one's ever said that. No one would ever read that that way. So. Uh, Lazarus does, but even Lazarus. Because his name literally meant uh, either no help or God helps, some have suggested even that could really be, and, okay, also because verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, who's the most famous, two most famous people in the New Testament who rose from the dead? Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus is talking, he's talking about Lazarus. That's definitely not a coincidence either. Um, but there's, there's a lot of people who would say one way or the other on it. But I, I would affirm that the teaching holds very true regardless. Um, what is the parable is not the teaching. It's the same. Yep. Uh, the rich man ain't going to have trouble with the rich. And Lazarus ain't going to have trouble with the poor. It's a frame of heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if we had had time, I wanted to look at Matthew... 25, I believe that would really echo that sentiment, um, but we'll save that for another time. I'm going to go ahead and close us in a word of prayer, and we will be dismissed. Lord, as we gather here this evening, we, we love you. We sing praises to your name. We, we lift you up. We exalt you. We thank you for all of the many wonderful blessings you have given us, especially just the ability to come and study your word together to fellowship with one another. I ask that as we go throughout our lives, you could be with us, you will guide us, and you will continue to to guide us into your will and continue to change us and mold us and shape us and grow in maturity towards you, God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.